I love the music of this church, whether it's Cameron with a guitar by himself, or we have a more full sound like this morning and special blessing of the kids singing. It's always great to be singing with you guys. There is a handout for today's message uh, on the back table, if it would help. Um, so you can take a minute to go get one if you'd like. As Pat ended his message last week, Jesus Christ is transitioning as we enter chapter 22 of Luke from prophet to priest to deliver himself as the, as the Passover lamb. Jesus Christ was now on his final leg of his journey to the brutal cross of Calvary. This was always his goal. This was always his final destination for his first coming to planet Earth. As we move on in this chapter, chapter 22, and in the next, it will seem as though the Jewish leaders will finally accomplish getting rid of this man who claimed to be the Messiah and the Son of God. It will seem as though the Roman leadership will finally quiet this tension between the Jesus followers and the Jesus haters. It will seem as though Judas, at least for a time, will finally have turned the tide in calling Jesus' hand and changing the direction of what Jesus was doing here. And it will seem that Satan will finally accomplish his plan finishing off Jesus Christ. But things were not as they seemed. The death of Jesus Christ was not the sad and tragic end of a uniquely spiritual person's life. Jesus was born for this. As we've spoken about before, all of history past and all of future to eternity will focus on one event. And this event is about to happen in Luke. And that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was about to enter this event. In fact, as we'll see today, he was not only entering it, he was making sure it happened just as the triune God had planned it before the foundation of the world. He was the one in control. In this event, just as he said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. So as we prepare our hearts to, to, to read God's word and to study it, please spend a moment and pray with me. Father, we confess to you this morning that our hearts are too often divided. Too often do we find satisfaction in things other than you and your kingdom. We look back at our past week and we see that. Lord, we confess that to you and repent and ask that you would forgive us and turn our hearts to loving you more, to having full hearts 
for Jesus Christ. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, we ask and we trust that your Holy Spirit would do that work in us today. It's a miraculous work of heart change that results in a change of direction of our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' strong name. Please open your Bibles, and we're going to read from Luke chapter 22, and we're going to read the first 13 verses. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him the money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. And they said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So as we look at this passage, we're going to see in verse 1, the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, and how they were spoken of in the first century. In verses 2 through 6, we're going to look at the how the enemies of Christ united as part of God's plan for the sacrifice of the very last Passover lamb, and that's capitalized for a reason. We spend most of our time there. And then in verses 7 through 13, the last half of the passage, we're going to look at the stealth planning of the last Passover meal Jesus was directing. Our goal is to, is to understand what the passage is saying and to understand and be affected by the implications that come, the truths that come from this that affect our lives. And we'll bring those out as we go along, hopefully. Verse 1, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and which is called the Passover, was approaching. Now that's a little confusing already for those of us who know that Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were not technically one feast, but two. Um, Several passages we could go to. Leviticus 23, 4 through 6. I'll just read this briefly. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord. In the first month, which was Nisan in the Jewish calendar, on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Now Passover, of course, was a memorial to the freeing of the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt through the ten plagues, the last of which was death 
to the firstborn of all in Egypt unless an unblemished lamb was killed and the blood of that lamb was put on the doorposts of their home. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was, was, to, was the next day, started the next day, and that lasted for seven days, and that focused on the sinless blood of that lamb that was slain, as well as a call to remove sin from the lives of those who were going to be following God, the Israelites at that time. Even in the New Testament, Passover and unleavened bread are used in a symbolic way by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 in his rebuke of the church for not dealing with sin, leaven, that was in the blood, in, in the church. And he called them out on that. And you can read that in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. So just to understand verse 1, because it seems like it's one, one feast, but it's, it was thought of that way. The entire eight days was commonly looked at as, as one feast. The first day of which was Passover, and then the, the, followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sometimes the whole eight days was called Passover, referred to as Passover. Sometimes the whole eight days was referred to as Unleavened Bread, as we see in verse 7 of this chapter, which can also be confusing. And on that, on that first day of, of Unleavened Bread, which was actually Passover, was when the Passover lamb had to be slain, sacrificed, and the, and the Passover meal was eaten, the Seder meal. So hopefully that helps us understand verse 1. So now in verses 2 through 6, we see the enemies of the true Messiah unite together. Passover was huge. It was a huge event in, in Jerusalem. Some estimate that a, a million people, up, I've, heard, I've seen estimations of 2 million people, were there bustling throughout the, the really small city of Jerusalem. And many of them were excitedly following Jesus after having hailed him as the miracle-working and disease-healing Messiah and King just a few days before this as he rode in on the donkey to Jerusalem. If something strange was going to happen in Jerusalem, it was most likely to happen on Passover week. Even, even Herod Antipas, who was the Tetrarch governor over Galilee in the north part of Israel, was there as well as Pontius Pilate, who is the governor of Judea. He was there. They were there during Passover to make sure nothing crazy happened. And Rome sent hundreds of extra soldiers to the area to keep peace and make sure that there was no uprisings during this time. Jerusalem was buzzing during Passover. Now, Jesus, by this time, had angered pretty much all the religious leaders at this point in his ministry. Of course, the Pharisees and the scribes, and more recently, the, the chief priests, who were mostly Sadducees, uh, who oversaw the temple. And of course, they were done with Jesus uh, when he cleared the, the temple a few days before this. And actually, after he cleared the temple and, of, of the money changers, uh, he stayed there and, and continued teaching in the temple for a few days up until this day, um, and I'm sure praying as well. So he kind of took over the temple which uh, they didn't like. They hated the truth that Jesus stood for and what he spoke. And they hated how the people, they thought, were moving their allegiance and honor away from them 
and towards Jesus. They hated that. In verse 2, we see not for the first time, we've seen it before, that they wanted him gone. They wanted him dead. But not now. Not during Passover week. There were so many followers of Jesus there. If they had done something this week, who knows what would have happened, they were thinking. Riots would occur. And we know that they were thinking this because in Mark's account of this, in Mark 14, 1 and 2, it says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So in that sense, they were afraid of the people, afraid of an uproar. If they rioted, Rome would have come in and squelched that riot, and there's a good chance that the Jewish religious leaders would have lost a lot of their authority and power and freedom in Israel. They feared that because that was their, that was their idol. It's interesting that the ones who knew God's word the best, their lives were steeped in God's word their whole life. They feared man, but not God. Sadly, that can happen in those of us who sit in Bible churches, too, and hear God's word. In addition, the religious leaders, as they saw Jesus' life, they could see. He fulfilled all the prophecies. They saw what he did. They could see beyond any reasonable doubt that he indeed was the promised deliverer, promised from the beginning from Genesis chapter 3. Yet they rejected him and refused to bow, to bow the knee to him. Yes, God was sovereign over this. We know that. In fact, the prophecies of Isaiah 53 had to come true, which predicted this very thing, that the rejection of the religious leaders of the Messiah was going to happen. But it's also true that they willfully rejected their Messiah. They were culpable and responsible for their sinful actions against Jesus Christ. And we see that coming to fruition in, in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, of that generation. And if they didn't repent, they would see the result of that for eternity, paying the wrath of their sin against the Holy God. Their passion for their own power and prestige blinded them to the truth of God when it was standing right next to him. And we'll see that in Judas as well. They couldn't see Jesus, and they wouldn't see Jesus for who he was. In verse 3, And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. We'll look at Judas first, and then we'll get to Satan. Judas was chosen by Jesus. He left his former life. He ate and slept and spent all his time with Jesus and the disciples. He heard him teach. He saw the miracles. And think about this. When, when the twelve were sent out in Luke chapter 9, he was one of the twelve. 
He preached the kingdom of the, the gospel of the kingdom. He cast out demons and he healed the sick. Judas. He was right there with them. In many ways, up until this point, he didn't really seem that much different than the other apostles, did he? Sure, he often stole from the money bag because he was the treasurer. And that was his lust. That was his idol. But they weren't pillars of faith either at this point. Jesus called them weak in prayer. They had little faith. And they had hard hearts. And they were proud. I mean, Judas didn't ask to sit at Jesus' right hand in the kingdom. Judas didn't ask Jesus to call fire down from heaven to kill a few Samaritans. Jesus didn't promise to die for Jesus and then deny that he even knew him. It really wasn't that much different. But Judas was different. Judas was very different. He saw who Jesus was. He saw the supernatural teaching. He saw the healings. He saw Jesus had control over nature itself. And he saw how Jesus loved people, including Judas. I mean, he was about to wash his feet during the Passover meal. And yet Judas rejected him. He refused to bow to knee, the knee to him as God Almighty as he was. Why? Because like the religious leaders, what he wanted, Jesus wasn't providing. And he wanted money. And Jesus and his disciples lived in abject poverty, didn't they? And he wanted out from Roman rule. And Jesus didn't seem to be moving in that direction at all. Who knows what else? But what he didn't want was what the Messiah came to do, why Jesus came to earth. He didn't want Jesus to, to deal with his sin. Again, we know before the foundation of the world that Judas was not part of the elect. We know God's sovereignty in this. But Judas was responsible for what he did, and we know that because we look at verse 22 of the same chapter during the Passover meal, it says, For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas was responsible for his actions. There are some lessons in, in these two examples, the religious leaders and Judas, that I think are very important to us and Run the handout if you have one. One is that desires that rule our heart can blind us to the truth of God. Desires that rule our heart, what we deeply want and must have, whether it be our health, whether it be our kids' health, you name it. Could be money like Judas or, or comfort. That can blind us to the truth of God's word when we're exposed to it. Of course, for unbelievers, we know that light has come into the world, Revelation, Jesus Christ, and men love darkness more than the light. For, for, for many professing believers that I've experienced, it seems that their heart's passion 
for relief from the brokenness of this world may have blinded them to the heart of the gospel message if they actually even heard it. When, they're, when we ask them, how do you know you're accepted by, by God? Or what has Jesus done for you? They list a, a lot of things. All, all the ways that God healed them. All the ways that God got them out of this circumstance and that circumstance. But they never mention their sin and how God t- took care of their sin. True disciples of Jesus come to him to deal primarily with their sin, not their circumstance. True disciples of Jesus Christ come to him primarily to deal with their sin, not their circumstance. And believers, we can be blinded too. When we come to read God's word or hear God's word Sunday mornings, Do we have heart desires for anything more than for for God, for his kingdom? We may, like Judas, be blinded to all the truth that God has for us in his word. We may be blinded to not seeing Jesus the way we want to see him, and we say we want to see him. So for me, if if we sit down to read God's word, or we come here on Sunday mornings, It seems to me that a good thing to do or to consider doing would be to confess our our double-mindedness before God, to confess our sin. And it all comes from heart that loves something or some things more than Jesus and his kingdom at that time. Maybe if we confess our sins and repent of it and actually want to change that, move our hearts in, in the direction of fully loving him, we might see better. We might capital S, see better, Jesus. Second lesson from from Judas, I think, is that Judas thought he was a disciple. He was a follower of Jesus. He was one of the guys. The implication is that our faith is not really tested until God's plan for us differs from our plan for us. Our faith isn't really tested until God's plan for us differs from our plan for us. Judas expected something from God, and he didn't get it, and so he bailed. We see this as an example of of the soils parable in in Luke chapter 8. Christianity is a persevering faith. It is is not a sprint, it's a a cross-country. So even for believers... What is your response when his plan for you is not your plan for you? We see this in obviously in, in big tragedies or big life-changing events. And how do we how do we deal with this? But it, it comes in very personally on a daily basis, really. What how do you how do you deal with life? when God's plan for your marriage turns out to be different than your plan for your marriage was. Or God doesn't have a plan for you to be married at all, and you had a plan to be married. How do we deal with these things? How do we deal with the job that we thought was going to be the perfect job for me? This is it. I I have a plan. It's going to work. And you get the job, and it doesn't work. It's horrible. Or your financial plan is not God's financial plan for you. 
you can go on and on, all the way down to a traffic jam on your way to an important meeting. And your plan is, is, is changed. It really comes down to what do I really want most? My, my will, my plan, or, or his? And our, our response can be anger, it can be depression, it can be fear, or it can be faith. God wants us to, to walk by faith in these times when it turns out our plan doesn't work out the way we want it to. Don't be a Judas. We need not to be a Judas in that. So let's talk about Satan. Verse 3, and Satan entered into Judas. Two things. One is, Satan didn't enter into Judas against Judas's will. Judas was wide open for this. He had already turned away from, from Jesus and, and desired to betray him. He was simply a willing vessel for Satan to enter. And secondly, Satan cannot act apart from God's permission. We, we learn this from the book of Job, if you read the beginning of the book of Job. So here, here we are at this moment. God has, well, John Piper, he, commun he communicates Satan in this way. He says he's a powerfully evil monster, but he's always on, on a leash that God holds. He's never off the leash. And in this situation, God loosened the leash a little bit, and Satan entered into Judas. Pretty significant statement. Can you all think of any other place in the scripture where Satan entered into a human being? I couldn't. It's a significant statement because it was a significant time in history. It was the time of history. The only other time it will happen is when Satan enters into the Antichrist himself. In Genesis 3.15, God gave us a, a prophecy of a deliverer of mankind, the first of, of many, who would deliver mankind and crush the head of Satan, which would be, means the ultimate defeat of Satan. Throughout Old Testament history and, and throughout history, really, Satan has wanted to change that plan and, and destroy that plan, stop that plan. The biggest example we have in Jesus' life is really the temptation in the wilderness. If, if, if uh, Satan had, had succeeded in any one of those temptations, God's plan of salvation would have been gone, would have been useless. And when, I, when we look at when we look at that passage in Luke in Luke four, this one that's described at the very end of that passage, when when Satan had given up, we read these words. And when the devil had end, ended every temptation, he departed from him until the opportune time. You don't think about that much when you read that passage. 
But when you read the passage we're in today, this is the opportune time. This is it. He's taken his opportune time, he thinks. So now is it. But actually, in actuality, Satan's design to destroy Jesus became the means that God used to crush his own head and to fulfill God's plan. Pretty awesome. As, as he was prophesied. Satan cannot enter us. Satan cannot enter believers because believers have the Holy Spirit indwelling within us. We are the temple of God. But he sure does want to affect us. He wants to destroy our faith and our witness. Not really so much because he hates us. He hates God. And we are now the representative of God as the church of Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't give Satan more credit than he's due. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's always on the leash. But he, he and his minions are not to be ignored either. First Peter says that he is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's us. So verse 4, Judas met with the chief priests and the officers, and they paid him money. It's the greatest thing they could do for him. It was initiated by Judas. We learn that in Matthew 26, 15. He said to the religious leaders, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Of course, even that was prophesied earlier in scripture, hundreds of years earlier, it was, it was prophesied that the Messiah would be betrayed by a close friend. And Judas was just part of that fulfillment. You can read about that in Psalm 41.9 or Zechariah 11.3. Even that was under the control of God. In verse 5, they were glad and they agreed to give him money. They were glad that word means excited, ecstatic. They were thrilled. Finally, they can get rid of Jesus. Likely their plan was, was, to, was to get Jesus when he wasn't in a crowd and either kill him that night before while everyone was sleeping or, or, or arrest him and keep him away from the crowd so more people couldn't come to him. And then after the Passover feast was, was done, then maybe they would kill him. They didn't want to riot, remember. But whatever their timing and plan, it didn't really matter because God was working out his plan on his timetable and Jesus was making sure it happened just that way. So in verse 6, we see Judas is now actively looking for an opportunity to hand over Jesus when he's in a private, away from the crowds moment. And we get to Verse 7 and the rest of this chapter is an interesting little story. We'll go through it fairly quickly. Where Jesus is carrying out his plan. And he, he does it in a stealth way, in a secret way. Verse 7, it says that Passover, which was Nisan 14, had arrived. The Jews were called to sacrifice and to prepare the Passover lamb and to eat the Passover meal. 
Nisan 14. So Jesus, who was obedient to the law and sinless until his very last breath, was going to eat the Passover meal with his disciples as it was according to the law. He was going to do it privately. What a great opportunity this would be for Judas. Judas, Jesus would be with the disciples. All the other people would be off the streets and in their homes. This is the chance. But it wasn't Jesus' time. Not yet. Jesus had so much to teach the disciples during this Passover meal. It was the last Passover meal. He knew it was. If you look at the book of John, there's five chapters designated to the description of what happens during this meal and the short time afterward. So much was done, so much was said by Jesus that he wanted his disciples to hear and us to read about and know. He wasn't about to be arrested before that happened. It was critically important to Jesus that this Passover meal happen. So verse 8 says, Peter, John, you guys come over here. I'll tell you what we're going to do. He sent, Peter and John were sent to prepare the Passover meal for Jesus and the twelve. Now, if I was Peter or John, this is the first thing that came to my mind. I would have thought, Lord, there's all these godly women around that are followers of you too. They're, they're true disciples. Wouldn't it be a better idea to have them prepare this meal? I mean, we're guys. Do you really want us cooking this meal, this, this important Passover meal for you? I don't know. They were, they were probably more faithful than I, but in verse 9, they said, where do you want us to prepare it? Being obedient disciples. Which would have been a good question, don't you think? Because you think about how crowded Israel or Jerusalem was. It was bustling with people. Everything was full. They even had tents that they would put around the city because so many people wouldn't fit into the rooms and the houses in the city to actually literally enlarge the city because the law said that they, they had to eat the Passover meal within the city and in their homes. So Peter and John were probably thinking, where in the world are we going to find a place at this point to have the Passover meal together? Now, of course, Judas was, was desperate to know, but he wasn't in on this conversation. He knew that the Sanhedrin, the chief priest, Caiaphas, the temple guard, they were, they were ready, ready for Judas to, to give them the tip-off of where this great place would be to, to get Jesus. So Jesus told only and sent only Peter and John into the secret mission. It really was kind of an interesting stealth mission into Jerusalem. He was in complete control. In verse 10, we see that he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. Now, if a man back then carried a pitcher, carried a pitcher of water, he would look really unusual. Because men, if they did carry water, they would carry it in an animal skin pouch. I guess that was the manly thing to do. You didn't carry a, you didn't carry a water pot 
pure guy back then. So he would have stood out. But it didn't really matter if he stood out or not because they didn't have to hunt him down. Jesus said, he will meet you. He will meet you. Verse 11 and 12, And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. The guest room was a large room, usually set aside for travelers for hospitality purposes. It was typically in a home that was an upper level, nicer home. In verse 12, it says it was furnished. It was ready for the Passover meal and probably had couches for them to recline on to eat the Passover meal. Now remember, these disciples were from Galilee. They were fishermen. They were, they were not used to this kind of luxury of the, what this upper room probably looked like to them. They probably walked into this upper room and saw how nice it was and we're have somehow God prepared this for us, and I bet the kingdom's coming right around the corner. Probably the kingdom's coming next. This is just a step towards it. Well, there were several thousand years off, but at least for the kingdom to come in a physical way. So we have an unnamed man, and he's going to lead them to an, another unnamed man who's the owner of the house. Pretty stealth operation here. The logical deduction were that, that these men were, were believers in Jesus. And they were very willing and no doubt happy to serve him in this apparently small way, maybe from their perspective. But it was big for Jesus. It was big and critical to this part of God's redemption plan. How did Jesus do this? We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. Some feel that he prophesied that this is, this is what these guys were going to do. And through his sovereignty, it happened. Others think that they were probably followers of him and he set it up ahead of time where he talked to them. Either way, Jesus was making things happen as he planned it uh, and as the Father planned it exactly on that their timetable. And then verse 13 is certainly not surprising, is it? And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So this passage ends with Peter and John in that upper room preparing the Seder meal, the Passover meal. They were the only ones who knew where it was, Judas would have loved to have known, but he didn't. And Judas would not find out until he walked there with the other, with Jesus and the other nine uh, disciples for the Passover meal. And when he got there, no doubt he was ready to leave as soon as he could to earn his 30 pieces of silver. So we talked about a couple implications that we had seen earlier. One is that desires that rule our heart, our sin, will, will blind us to the truth. So we should confess them to God and repent of them before expecting to see or hear the truth of the word. 
Secondly, our faith is not really tested until God's plan for us differs from our plan for us. Now we see a third implication, and I think this is probably the main point of this passage. And that is that every detail of God's grand narrative, his redemptive plan from Genesis to Revelation, he is accomplishing as he planned it and with whom he planned it and exactly on his timetable. This passage is just a small little brief view of what that looked like. Please note, remember Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. These were believers in the early church who were praising God for actually for Peter and John not getting arrested. It says, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Pretty heavy. I actually had a client at Smyrna Animal Hospital that I had been sharing the gospel with for years, this couple. And the woman, I've never had anyone have this objection before. But the woman said, I, I just can't go there. How could a father do this to a son? And that, I've never heard that before. It's an interesting concern, and uh, thankfully we were able to get through that um, in understanding that this was the idea of the triune God. This was the idea based on their love. And this was, this was that, that significant because our sin is that significant against the Holy God. That's what it took. She did become a believer. We can trust that God will bring about his promises, not only despite God-haters in the world, but even using them to accomplish his plan. You and I, we as this church, this is the time we're living in. This is, this is our culture that we're living in. In our lives, all of God's promises, his redemptive plan, and the prophecies that he's made are going to come to pass. Right on time, his time. Russia, Ukraine, is that bothering you these days? China, Iran, North Korea? in his plan. He's got this. All things, all his promises, all things working out for good to those who love God, Jesus accomplishes that. Blessings that come from persecution, God's strength showing forth in our weakness, love, conquering fear, it happens because God promised it would happen. All God promises, all of them will come true. And, and, and the greatest of all, as we've talked about week after week here, Jesus' return and the judgment and the glorious kingdom life that will follow will happen on his timetable, just as he said. We serve a mighty God who has proven himself a thousand times. He's not going to fail. 
we can trust him and we need to trust him. That's what walking by faith is. Finally, there's one more thing. One more thing that, that I see when I see these two nameless men that are used in such a significant way in God's agenda, God's timetable. They had no fanfare. They, they were just there. They just did what, what Jesus asked them to do. And the, our fourth implication or lesson is this. God often chooses humble, unrecognized people unimportant to society or even the religious world to do his greatest work. We, as the body of Christ here at Community Bible Church, can be active and important participants in God's redemptive plan. That's big. We don't need to be big or well-known to carry water or offer a room the King of Kings. We have a choice. We all have a choice. We can live our lives half-hearted. We can do, we can come to church and we can do some of the things that that we do as, as church people and spend 80% of our lives being more satisfied in his creation than in him being more focused when we look at our lives and we look at how, how we have thought, how we have felt, the way we've spent our time, whether we're working full-time or whether we're a full-time homemaker at home. What a wasted life that would be. Or we can live our lives humbly serving the Lord, with no fanfare, knowing that we are a small part of his redemptive plan. We are a part of what he is doing here on earth right now, as his church together, making Christ's name known, establishing, loving one another in the church, and walking by faith empowered by his very spirit himself. And what a joyful and fulfilling life that would be. Amen. Let's close in prayer.